As we get started in God's word this morning, I ask you to join me for a word of prayer as we ask God to specifically speak to us through this passage today. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful, um, just as Renato prayed this morning, that you didn't leave us guessing as to what you say, what you think, what you want. You gave us your word. And so as we open it today, as we open it, we pray that you would open us so that we would yield to it, understand it, yes, but submit to it and live into it. We thank you that we could do that together with this congregation as we worship you together in unison. That You've built this like-mindedness in us so that we can worship you from that unity, Father. And we ask you to use this passage today to emphasize that, enhance that. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You don't have to leave this parking lot and go very far before you will see churches with signs, not very much unlike ours, the sign out there that says the name of the church, the um, address, maybe a sign about what time service starts or something like that. But increasingly what you'll see kind of tucked on the corner is a little like a rainbow flag and then a sign that says all welcome. Everyone's welcome here. I mean, that's on the church corner right here across the street from the gas station. Make a left. The church across the street from the theater, same thing. So you don't, you don't have to go far. Probably on your commute home, you see other examples of this sort of virtue signaling on the church signage. Other churches may not welcome everyone, but we do. We welcome all colors, all peoples, whatever your lifestyle, whatever your gender, whatever you decide your gender is today. You're welcome at our church, but maybe not other churches, is what the sign says. What they're really saying is that our welcome is extended to people who agree with us about welcoming these things. So there really is no such thing as universality. There's only unity. But unity always unites around something, therefore excluding those who don't agree with you on those somethings, and therefore they're not in unison with you. If you walk into that church and say, hey, you said all welcome here, but I don't believe in gay marriage. Are you still welcome there? Probably not. What does it really mean to welcome people? Well, you welcome them to something. You welcome them into something. What is that something? And however you define that something, that is unity around some agreements. And if you don't agree with those agreements, you're not in unison with whoever that something is. Are all welcome here at CFC? Yes. Yes. In the same way that all are welcome at any of these churches that say all welcome on the board, the difference is not whether we're welcoming. The difference is what are we welcoming you to? That is the difference. 
And as we think about unity, especially in a time where this is all anybody can talk about, and Christians are accused of being unwelcoming people, exclusive, and you have to think like us and be like us, and Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I beg to differ. I, I think we have the greatest source of unity the world has ever known, can ever know. And not any other kind of unity can hold a candle to the kind of unity that Christians possess. I want you to see that in this passage, in the letter uh, that Paul wrote to the Romans. We're in chapter 15. Many people see this as the culminating passage. The whole letter was culminating in this big piece. Why has he spent so much time talking about how Jews are guilty and Gentiles are guilty? Whether you had the law, Gentiles, you, uh, or Jews, you were guilty because you couldn't live under the law. Gentiles are like, but we didn't have the law. We're good, right? No, you, you're not good either. He started with them. Even though you didn't have the law, you had creation, you had your conscience, you had the works of the law written on your heart. You didn't obey that. So what makes you think you would have obeyed had you had the law? And then the Jews are like, yeah, Gentiles. And then he turns the guns on the, Gent- on the Jews, remember? But you can't judge them. You had all that plus the law, and you still didn't obey So he keeps pushing this whole thing. Remember the thick chapters, 9, 10, and 11, those chapters that, I don't know about you, you were probably looking forward to what I do with it. I was looking looking at it like, man, this is going to be a tough week when I have to preach that section. But the point of all of it, when he talks about election and when he talks about depravity and when he talks about all this deep theological stuff, the point of it is everyone is equally guilty And so we all need the same saving mechanism, which is Jesus Christ. That's the point of Romans. And then when he starts applying it, think about the ways he's applying it. Hey, y'all need to get along. First of all, serve one another. And there's this underlying theme. I mean, that's true in general, but there's this underlying theme of unity because you've got these Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians that are having a hard time getting along. Some of them think you're allowed to eat meat. Others think you're not allowed to eat meat. Remember that? And he's like, we don't have to all eat the same thing, guys. We can, we can dwell together in unity, as the psalmist says. We can worship God in unity. And for some of us, we are, the, the, the difficulty with the Gentiles and Jews, uh, Jewish Christians is lost on us because we're like, we don't talk about eating meat or, you know what I'm saying? Like, we don't really think about keeping a kosher kitchen. But what are the things we think about? We think about politics and we think about uh, so-called racial reconciliation. And we think about why are we so exclusive with regard to marriage? And Christians arguing and debating about these sorts of things. So we understand what he's talking about and the need to welcome one another. And that's the point of the, the whole previous paragraph leading up to verse 7 of chapter 15. He talks about how Christ is the one who didn't please himself but took on reproaches so that We wouldn't get the reproaches that go to God so that God can unite us together as one congregation, as one people, whether you're Jew or Gentile, whatever your background, that we're united together. Verse 7, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That was the whole point of not just last week's sermon, but what all of Romans was getting to, this getting together. So, of course, we're a welcoming church. We welcome one another, but we welcome one another in a certain way. We welcome one another the way Christ welcomes. 
And Christ says, everyone is welcome to repent. Everyone is welcome to experience joy on the other side of the door called repentance. So is everyone welcome or not? Yes, everyone is welcome to repent. But if you refuse to repent, you're not welcome. But who is able to repent? Do you have to be a certain ethnicity? Do you have to be a certain age? Do you have to be from a certain country? Do you have to be a certain social class? No, 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 no. So everyone is welcome to this thing. But that this thing is the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So for the Christian church, there is no segregation. There is no segregation in the Christian church. If Jews and Gentiles were able to get together, there is no other kind of barrier that should separate believers. Our point of unity is the person and work of Jesus Christ. So he's going to take verse 7, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us for the glory of God. Now he's going to continue to prove it. He's going to back it up and explain it. And he's going to even get there from Old Testament scripture. It's, it's beautiful. And it's not real long. We're just going to go 8 through 13 today. But look at just verse 8. Coming off the, out of, uh, uh, on the heels of verse 7, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Why? For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So those are the fathers, the ancestors of the Jewish people. So he came to confirm God's promises to the Jews, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob being those patriarchs. And so as the Jews are reading that, they're like, yeah, it's our promises. We received the oracles. The Messiah is a Jewish Messiah. If you want to be a Christian, you've got to read Jewish scriptures, buddy. But then Paul says, and though, and, so in order to confirm the promises to the Jewish patriarchs, yes, and in order that the Gentiles, which ones, any of them, might glorify God for his mercy. So you see that Paul is rooting this togetherness of the Jews and the Gentiles and all Christians from all times and all places, all ethnicities, all families of the earth are brought together in Christ. That is the point of unity, not anything else. That is the point of unity. I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So let's see how Jesus Christ fulfilled that for the Jews because that's how he also does it in verse 9. He doesn't do it in a different way for Gentiles. He does it the same way so that those promises, as he fulfills those, they get extended to everyone in the earth. So we all get to enjoy the oracles. We all get to enjoy the promises because they get extended, but it's to the Jews first because the Jews receive those promises. So he's a servant, and he's come to be a servant to fulfill these ancient promises to the patriarchs. And those promises were given in the form of covenants, okay, in the form of covenants. And covenants always have signs. When you got married, those of you who were married, when you got married and you stood before the minister, you were enacting a covenant, right? It's not a contract. It's an agreement. It's not a contract. It's a covenant, it's holy, 
It's matrimony. And the minister probably asked you, do you have a symbol of your vows? In other words, covenants are based on promises, and the marriage covenant is based on, an, on a mutual exchange of promises. And however it came about, that rings became sort of the go-to symbol of that covenant. The minister says, do you have a symbol of your vows? And you, know, you turn and get the ring from whomever, or a little kid comes up with a pillow. However you figure it out, there's a symbol that serves as a sign of the covenant. So every time you see the symbol, you think of the covenant. And that's how covenants work. When God made a covenant with Noah, he made a promise that I will never wipe out the earth with a flood again. And every time it rains, as the mist is evaporating and relieving you of the scary thought that that rain maybe won't stop because there was a time in the world where it didn't stop until everyone was dead, Now, they didn't understand everything about light spectrums and whatnot, but God put a bow, kind of like an archer's bow, but pointed up. Rather than attacking the earth, it's pointed up and away. I will not attack the earth with the flood again. So when you see the rainbow, that's a sign of my promise to Noah. When he made the promise with Moses, that I'm going to pull you out of Egypt and get you out of that land and get you across this difficult wilderness period. I will get you through, and when you get through that difficult wilderness period, you'll have rest in the land. And the sign for that is you're going to work hard for six days, and on the seventh day, don't work at all. I'm so serious about this. If I catch you working on that seventh day, I'll kill you. Stop working and rest on that seventh day. Why? Because that's the symbol. Just like it's disrespectful to take your wedding ring and toss it in the trash or take it off and hide it when a cute girl's walking by. Disrespectful, right? I want you to rest on that Sabbath day to remember I bring you to your rest. I will bring you to that place of promise. How about the covenant to Abraham? Well, that's circumcision. As we you read Ephesians, you read Galatians, there's all this stuff about circumcision, circumcision. You're like, what is going on? Well, people argue about the appropriateness of circumcision today, and it has nothing to do with any of these reasons, really. And I'll try to be as, uh, you know, circumspect as I can be about that particular gruesome sign. But when, Paul, when uh, God made a covenant promise to Abraham... He's basically saying, you remember Genesis 3, when man fell and sin entered this world and everything got messed up, right? Some of that was because this serpent came and deceived Eve. And God made a promise that through Eve, he will bring a seed, an offspring. He'll get bruised by the serpent. But he'll crush the head of the serpent. And in the end, we win. Now I'm going to do that through a seed, not a garden kind of seed. Right? Conception. Offspring. Kids. And eventually there will be one kid who grows up to be a king who crushes finally the serpent and brings peace 
ushers us back into the rest of the garden, essentially. Now, the sign for that is every time you have a boy, you're going to wait eight days and cut them. Why cut and why there? Seed. Procreation. That's the promise. Jesus came to be that final seed, that final one who did the work, born in the line of not just Eve, but through David, David's family, to fulfill God's covenant promise to David that through him, you'll have a king. So from Genesis 3, these promises get more specific. They get more specific. And then when it gets to Abraham, okay, we know that seed is going to come specifically through Abraham, not any other line. And then within Abraham's line, it gets specific with David. It's going to be this royal line. And so when he says Christ became a servant to the circumcised, he's saying Christ came to fulfill that covenant. He came to fulfill those promises. He came to crush the head of the serpent. He came to defeat sin, defeat death. Get us out of this exile situation where we've been kicked out of the presence of God and usher us back into rest with God. All of those covenants culminate in Jesus Christ. But if you read the Old Testament carefully, those promises were never meant for just Israel. Those promises were never meant for just Israel. There are many Christians out there, sometimes Jewish, many times they're not Jewish at all. But it's like, you got normal Christians, and then if you're a Jewish Christian, you're the apple of the eye. But I, I want to remind my brothers and sisters that are in that line of thinking, maybe they're right in some level. I want to remind them, man, it was never about Israel. Israel was a chute, a channel pipeline for blessing to everybody, to everyone. If you look back at God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, he tells him, I'm going to do this promise through you, through your family. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And then he says what in, in verse 3? In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is not agricultural blessing. This isn't like Jews are going to be really good at this certain crop, and people are going to be able to enjoy that crop because I gave that to the Jews. The crop is Jesus crushing the head of the serpent on behalf of not just the Jews. It wasn't a Jewish promise in Genesis 3. It's a universal promise. He chose a specific channel through whom he would write Scripture, send the Messiah. But that channel goes out to everyone. In Genesis 18, the promise reiterated, given some more detail to Abraham. God says, all the families of the earth will be blessed in Abraham. Which families? All of them. All the families. Genesis 22 says again, In your offspring shall all of the nations of the earth be blessed. Again in Genesis 26 verse 4, In your offspring all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Again. So you don't even leave the first book of the Bible before at least four different times God is saying, I'm going to send this seed to fix this problem for everybody. For everyone. So that no matter what corner of the earth you're born in, you can come to the cross and experience salvation. We do not care what your age is. We don't care what your track record is. It doesn't, you, some of you might be like, but they don't realize I did this kind of sin. It's sufficient. 
Some nations, as you read through Scripture, some nations are especially, especially naughty. God doesn't exclude his promises based on the track record of your nation or your heritage or your ethnicity. You might be quite ashamed about what your ethnic people have done in the past. We all probably have some point of shame with regard to that. But if all families of the earth are welcome to the cross, that means your heritage isn't counted against you. Your personal heritage, what you did before in your own personal life, your family heritage, your nation's heritage, won't be counted against you when you come to Christ. Some of you are like, duh, go out there and listen to how Christians are preaching today. There are those who would say that some of us don't get off so easy when you come to Christ because if you're a certain color, you're still guilty. You carry around guilt. But I'm a Christian, I know, but you're still guilty. That doesn't make any sense. All families of the earth are blessed in this particular promise. Outside of this promise, there's all kinds of guilt going around. There's all kinds of condemnation. Therefore, those who are not in Christ, lots of condemnation. For those who are in Christ, no condemnation. Regardless of where you're from, regardless of what you've done or what your families have done. You come before the Lord on the, same, on the back of the same promise that was given to the Jewish people. That central seed promise of Genesis 3.15. And that's how, remember back in chapter 4, verse 13, Paul calls Abraham the heir of the world. That doesn't mean the whole world becomes Jewish. It means the whole world becomes Christian through the promise given to the Jews. So this is a worldwide, all-welcoming extension of grace. However, when we start telling people, you know what, God welcomes everybody from all families, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what lifestyle you choose or whether you're living in sin, that, that doesn't really matter. God, God is love. No, God is a, he's God of love, loving enough to give a specific promise. And that specific promise was to rescue us from our sins. So if we come to him and say, thanks for the rescue, leave me in my sin, we don't experience the rescue. And if we don't experience the rescue, we're not in. You are welcome. You are welcome to be delivered from your sins not to redefine them or explain them away. That is how the nations come to Christ. And this is what I think we long for. Our society has moments of unity. Tina was reminding me about the, the, the Cubs parade. Some of y'all went to it. And um, all kinds of people, all ages, Gathering together, just completely taking over Chicago because a baseball team won. Now, if anybody here can understand celebrating a long, a long awaited for uh, victory, uh, you, you have a brother in this Red Sox fan. I mean, it, it took a long time. It's a game. And then what happens after the parade when everybody's 
back in their places and the confetti is all on the street. It's not a lasting unity. Because baseball can't really bring people together, but for a few hot dogs and a, and a few innings, a trophy that none of us get to, I mean, it's not our trophy. It's sad what the world rallies around, what the world gets focused on, these points of unity that don't work, but it does show us that humanity has a longing for unity. There's, there's something about meeting someone else who cheers for your same team. There, there's something about that. There's something about clubs and hobbies and having the same alma mater that, oh, there's, there's a sense of unity there. We like unity. It's just that none of those really unite. What really unites is God's reconciling work. God is for reconciliation, but he does it a specific way. He does it through Jesus Christ's work on the cross, taking the death that should have been ours, rising again to in, bring us into new life with him, and soon returning to usher in his full reign for those who are kingdom citizens. And you get citizenship in this kingdom through repentance and faith in the gospel that I just laid out. And that's for anybody. He always intended it to be for all peoples everywhere. He establishes that from a few verses in the Old Testament. He's going to give us, I'm going in backwards order. He's going to end with Isaiah 11. Before that, Psalm 117, Deuteronomy 32 is debated whether he's in a psalm or in 2 Samuel in this first quote. Let me read you the quotes. In order that the Gentiles, this is verse 9, might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Old Testament. Now, I gave you all those Genesis passages, but he's going to be in different places. So maybe 2 Samuel, maybe from the Psalms, but he says, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Verse 10, citing Deuteronomy 32. And again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Verse 11, and again, Citing a psalm, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all peoples extol him. And then again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse, that's David's dad. So the, the coming out of Jesse, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. Oh, get ruled? Yeah, and you're going to love it. We don't hate rulers, we just hate how crappy they are. Right? They're just not able to do a good job. They fail. They have moral failures. They're always in it for themselves at some point. The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles will hope. Yes. A ruler like that, yes. Enthrone him. Crown him. Give him the scepter. We want a ruler that rules justly righteously and the gentiles find christ to be that hope paul's basically saying look this isn't new this is in genesis this is in the law this is in the psalms the writings this is in the wisdom literature this is in the prophets he's basically quoting from each major section of the old testament to show you the whole thing says the same thing that this gospel goes out to everyone regardless of your ethnicity, whether you're Jewish, whether you're Gentile, or which Gentile you are. 
I'm probably going to say that another five or six times in case you're like, wow, he said that a lot of times. I'm going to say, I'm going to keep saying it. Because this world will challenge you on that. He's always intended it. And what he intended was not just unity around, wow, it's really cool. We do meals together. Or, wow, I love the songs. I, I love being with different people. No, the point of unity is glorifying God in verse 9. He confirmed the promises to the patriarchs in order that the Gentiles might be united in what way? The, the Jews are supposed to welcome them and they're supposed to welcome the Jews. For what? To glorify God. And then look at the things he quotes. To sing your name, verse 9. Verse 10, to rejoice. Verse 11, to praise, to extol. And then verse 12, to hope. A lot of these praise, sing, praise again, extol. It reminds us of what we do when we gather and we sing songs together. You're like, man, why do we sing songs? Four songs, five songs? Well, why do you sing songs at sport events, sporting events? Whatever team we're from, whatever team you're rooting for, let's all look at the flag and see what really unites us. Now let's all stand and sing a song about it. The world knows how to do it. I'm not disparaging that. I think we should have the flag and re remind ourselves there's something above the colors of this team, and it's the colors of that flag. I think that's important for a nation, not just America. That's important to, to, to have a united nation. But what we're prescribed throughout Scripture, all the singing and all the gathering and all the worship, is just higher level of that, that what unites us is singing songs to colors that are greater than ours. It's this King Jesus Christ that we come to worship, not our background. And so we sing, we praise, we extol this God who's brought us together as one big family. We look around our family table and we see people that don't look like us, don't sound like us, don't listen to our same music, but we're all sitting together, fellowshipping in God through Jesus Christ. How is that possible? Grace and mercy because aside from this life, we would have had death. That's what unites us. That's better than a sports team, a hobby, sharing the same college that you went to. You go to the same gym. Who cares? In light of this great act that God has done in Jesus Christ, that's what unites us. What I'm so encouraged by is that when people come to our church for the first time, I can't tell whether they'll stick based on what they look like. I, I cannot predict, I can't be like, we're, we're so this, a person that's that, they won't come. Because I think here, you don't have to hang around very long to, before you find out, we don't care what you look like. We don't care where you're from. I don't think in 15 years, I'm not sure. I probably shouldn't say this. I didn't write it down. I don't know. I, I don't think I've ever been asked, aside from this morning, and it's good. It's a good question. I, I love it. I'm not disparaging the question at all, but it's just occurring to me. I don't think I've ever been asked, how would you get the name O'Neill? I thought you were Puerto Rican. I think it's because this church doesn't care. I go to other contexts, and they're like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Whoa, wait a minute. Wait. What's going on with your name? It's almost like I saw your name and I thought I was going to get a white guy and then I see a Hispanic looking guy. Cool. Shut up, man. 
What's ironic to me is uh, how my first name, a Spanish name, and my last name, an Irish name, speak to a long history that people just chalk up to, what is that? Best I can tell, the Spanish, as they were colonizing the island of Puerto Rico, brought along with them many Irish who were conscripted. The Irish were, oh, let's drink beer on a ship and go colonize islands. They were like, okay. Conscripted white Irish people by the Spanish who were in charge, taking over everything, and then landing on an island and taking over the Taino Indians on the island. How far back is that? Where did you get your last name? I guess then. I mean, I don't know any, I don't have like an Irish uncle. That's how far back it goes. What is a Puerto Rican really then? Are we Indian? Have you ever seen a Puerto Rican that looks black? Yeah, there were African slaves up in there too. What is Puerto Rican? Now that's a small subset of what we say is Hispanic. It just doesn't make sense. These categories don't make sense. It's so mixed and variegated. It, the categories don't make sense. If we wanted to use those categories for unity, it would be impossible. Sadly, and ironically, I think those who most talk about unity, that most talk about racial reconciliation today and so-called social justice, promote the most divisive principles that are tearing churches apart, ruining ministries, and destroying our seminaries. In the name of unity, do you see why it's ironic? Now, they might say it's ironic because white people just can't take it. No, it, you're just deepening the irony because who's at the head of the spear? White people. White people are mostly running the seminaries that are imploding because of this stuff. The churches that I know about that are, that are splitting over this stuff, white senior pastors, mostly white elders. It's not about white or black or brown. I mean, this is, it's ridiculous that we have to say it. But in the name of unity, they're actually splitting families, churches, institutions apart. Our unity can't be about social status. Our unity can't be about color or our history or even our political party. Our unity is our adoration of God for what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. You've been coming to CFC for some time and you feel like you're not connected, just go connect. I, here's my personal opinion. Can I give a personal opinion from the pulpit? I think if you have a hard time connecting at CFC, it's your fault. I, I, have never, I haven't met anybody who's a core part of our church here that is intentionally off-putting, says no if you ask them to lunch. Nah, I don't want to do lunch with you. I've never, I've been here 15 years, right? I've never seen that. I do see people who come in with certain categories and they look around them like, I don't know if I fit this category. You do fit the category. What you have to do is take these little categories, leave them behind, and embrace the one big category that unites all of us. And it's not race. It's not music style. If you'd like to hear something a little different, ask Ben. I don't know. 
But that's not what unites us. What unites us is what the songs say. That's what unites us. What unites us is what the gospel is. That's what brings us together. The irony is that people who go to a, all our welcome church that are embroiled in perverted sexual relationships won't get help. Fill our seats and give offering in the plate and join us and you're welcome. We won't bother you here. Well, we will bother you here. Just like this people will bother me when I do things that aren't right. I need help. I need assistance. And it's not assisting me if you leave me there drowning. All are welcome to grab a life preserver and get on board, but that ship is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's no other way to stop drowning. I don't say that because I'm the captain of the ship. I say that because I'm still soaking wet from my rescue. And I want to provide that for other people. And I want us to extend it to all other people. I want those out there that meet you to know that you, you extend the invitation to them regardless of where they're from. Finally, I'll close with this last verse, which is the main point. His prayer for them. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And I could do the whole sermon just on that. <laughs> may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. How? In believing. That's faith. That's just another word for faithing, or believing. That's how you get in the door. Repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And what you have, you have joy and peace. We don't look forward to joy. The Christian has joy now. We don't look forward to peace. We have peace now. We have reconciliation with God, the real reconciliation that matters. And then God does this reconciling work in Jesus Christ between us. We have that now. That's not the future thing. That's the now thing. If you're a Christian and you're struggling with joy, you shouldn't. I mean, we struggle with it, but we really shouldn't. Can you have real joy now? Yes. Can you have real lasting peace now? Yes. You don't have to wait to get to heaven to have peace. It's a now reality. What he's praying for is a filling of hope and a bounding of hope that comes together with that joy and peace that's already been purchased for us. And so we see the theme of joy back in chapter 14. It might be just on your same page. You don't even have to turn to it. Verse 17 of the previous chapter. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. We experience that one later now. We partake in that now. That's how we can eat together, even if some of us eat differently, he's saying. But it coincides with this hope that he's asking to fill us now. And hope we have now, but it, 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 it looks for later because it's not finished. We look for this coming root of Jesse who's going to come and finalize his reign, but that's not here yet. And so... His prayer is that God fills us with this hope together with this joy and peace that we have so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So let me ask you a question and look at the text. Look at the verse and I'm asking you a question. What does it take to abound in hope? The power of the Holy Spirit. Hope is such a difficult thing 
that it takes the sovereign, almighty power of God himself and the Holy Spirit to get you to abound in it. Hope is flimsy in the sense that we grasp for it with our flimsy human fingers. And it slips through our fingers. But if it's the Holy Spirit applying that hope in our lives, then that means we care more about this coming king than we do about our coming paycheck. The things that face you now, diseases, job losses, difficulties, this challenge that we have living out the Christian life in this downsliding culture, we don't get rocked by it. We persevere in it because our hope is not in those things. Our abounding hope is in this coming Savior, which doesn't mean we go, well, when he gets here, that'll be great. Let me do other things right now. But that hope defines and controls how you live your life now. That's what he's been arguing this past few verses. We live with each other and we live in response to our, even our worldly, wicked, governing rulers. Chapter 13, we live a certain way. Even when they persecute you, you respond a certain way. Even when you have disagreements within a congregation, you live a certain way. If you're new here, I hope you don't think what I'm saying is there's never any disagreements here at Christian Fellowship Church. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as a congregation that doesn't have disagreements. It's in all these letters that Paul writes. And as he writes to the Romans, he's helping them understand what the point of their real agreement is. And the real point of agreement is the joy and the peace and the hope that is afforded to us through Jesus Christ. God has extended his merciful promise of salvation to all peoples of the world so that all of us can unite in rejoicing in that one true hope. Let's go out there and explain that to people that are disconnected from God and from each other. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would leave here encouraged, that even as we close with this song, that we would, uh, that our focus would be on our unity in Jesus Christ and not anything else. We thank you for granting us that. We thank you for extending it to the whole world. We pray that through us, we would also be channeled, shoots, um, avenues of blessing to the place in the world we find ourselves. And we ask that others would come to know you through Jesus Christ, perhaps through our witness, through our lives, and through our proclamation of the gospel. Uh, affirm that and confirm that in us, Lord, as we sing this song. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?